If you've not done so already, open your Bibles to Psalm 35. Thank Austin for uh, taking on the challenge of, of teaching an imprecatory psalm uh, to our children. Uh, I told him when he volunteered, I said, this, this week's psalm's a little harder. Uh, it's, a, it's a challenge, and, and these are challenging psalms. Uh, these, are, these are challenging psalms for us as adults to know uh, how to read them and, and how to process them and, and how to use them in our own prayers and our own worship of God. Look again at what David writes. Look again at how he begins. He, he says, contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. He is calling upon God to take up the weapons of war, the the shield and buckler, the spear and javelin. He's he's calling on them not only to to come to his rescue, but to come against his enemies, shouting, I am your salvation. I think such prayers, which we we actually find throughout the Psalter, they they make many Christians today uncomfortable and, and maybe a little confused. Because the scriptures clearly teach that as followers of Christ, we are not to take vengeance against our enemies. We are not to return evil for evil. That may have been uh, the most quoted text in my household when my kids were little. Not returning evil for evil. But on the contrary, what are we to do? We are to bless those who persecute us. We are to love and pray for our enemies. And so when we come across a psalm like this, we we are left wondering how can a command to pray for our enemies be reconciled with a prayer for their destruction to to come upon them when they do not know it, as we see in verse 8. Those those seem mutually exclusive, do they not? It it seems difficult to understand how we are praying for our enemies and praying against them at the same time. Either we are for them or against them. We, We can't do both any more than we can go this way and that way at the same time. I I can't pray for my enemies and against my enemies in the same breath, or at least so it seems. And therefore, many Christians today, they they reject and disparage psalms such as this. They they prefer to just simply skip over them because they are sub-Christian, or maybe maybe pre-Christian. Maybe they were okay in the Old Testament, but certainly New Testament Christians today should not pray such things. Well, you've heard me say it before, and I will say it again as we continue to work our way through the Psalms, that that is not the correct way to think about these Psalms, these Psalms that we call imprecatory. It's one of those big words that you'll you'll hear from time to time. It's simply a Psalm that, that calls down a curse upon an enemy. And I will say that we can't simply skip over these psalms. We, we can't simply ig- ignore them. In fact, not only may we sing these psalms, I would suggest to you that we must, as we must sing all of the psalms. All Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is, is useful. And these psalms have been given to God's people to be sung in worship. These are a right expression of Christian prayer. Now, we don't sing these to the exclusion of praying for our enemies. But rather, we 
sing them even as we pray for our enemies. And to help us understand exactly how we do that, how we can do both at the same time, I want us to look more closely at this psalm, because in this psalm we are going to see God in his character. Remember how God revealed himself to Moses when Moses asked to see his his glory. God revealed himself how? He, He revealed himself as the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love to a thousand generations and delighting to forgive iniquity and transgression and sin. That's what we remember, right? That's, that's what we quote when we, when we think about God's revelation of himself. He is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But do you remember that in that same breath, in that same revelation, as, as God revealed himself to Moses, he also revealed himself as a God who will by no means clear the guilty. He will by no means leave them unpunished, but rather he will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children, the children's children, to the third and fourth generation. God is undoubtedly a God of mercy. And he is at the same time a God of justice. He is both at the same time, without contradiction, a God of grace and a God of of wrath. He is a God who so loved the world and a God who hates sinners. He is both. And we as his children, if we are to be holy as he is holy, if we are to reflect his character, then we too must be both. We must both pray for our enemies and we must pray against them. And I think this psalm can actually help us to learn how to do that. So let's, let's just first notice a few things about this psalm so that we can understand how we can better use it. First, notice that David is, again, praying against enemies. And they are his enemies, no doubt. Uh, notice how he refers to them. He says, those who contend with me, those who fight against me, those who seek my life, those who devise evil against me, those who hide a net for me, those who maliciously testify against me, those who repay me evil for good, those who rejoice at my stumbling. You could go on and on and on. And clearly, these are David's enemies, possibly Saul, as, as Austin was saying in the, the children's sermon. But who are these enemies? They are David's enemies, but they are the enemies of David as the anointed one. They they are the enemies of David as the anointed king. This is a psalm of David. That that means that this 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 is David speaking as the anointed king. And so therefore, these enemies are the enemies of God's anointed. They are the enemies of God's king. They are the enemies of God's kingdom. They they don't oppose David because he has done anything wrong to them. Notice he he says it continually throughout the psalm. They they hate me without cause. They even hate me against cause. He said, I I was kind to them. I I even mourned when they were sick. I I wept with them. He said, these have been people to whom I have been loyal, to people to whom I have been been faithful. They hate me without cause. They, They hate me not because of anything I have done to them. They hate me because I am the Lord's king. And only because I am the Lord's king. And therefore, by praying against his enemies, David is praying against God's enemies. He is, in effect, praying, thy kingdom come. 
Even as we did earlier in the service when we, we prayed for God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. Think about that, that prayer. If you are praying for God's kingdom to come, if you're praying for God's kingdom to be established, you are by definition praying against all other kings and against all other kingdoms. God's kingdom can be established, can fill the earth only as all pretenders to the crown, as all other kingdoms are wiped away. And so we begin to see, yes, what David is praying here is actually what Jesus taught his disciples to pray. This is what Jesus taught us to pray when he said, pray thy kingdom come. You are praying for God's kingdom to be established. You're not praying against your own personal enemies. You're not even praying against the enemies of your particular people, group, or nation. You are praying against the enemies of God, against those who oppose his name, those who oppose his kingdom, those who who oppose the the advancement of his gospel to the ends of the earth. Now, when we think about God's people being opposed today, we we often think of the the persecuted church throughout the world, and that is right. Those who persecute the church, those who who take up arms against the church, or those who take up economic uh, sanctions against the church, or those who simply uh, shun the church and exclude them from community, whatever the, the means of the oppression, those who oppose the church today, they are certainly opposing God's people. They are they are opposing the advancement of God's kingdom on earth. But it is not only out there that such things can take place. Even here in the United States, we, we see more and more those who oppose the proclamation of the gospel. They, they oppose the clear proclamation of Jesus Christ as the Savior. They, they oppose the proclamation of, the, of the, uh, the beautiful ethic of his kingdom. We see that more and more in our own society. And when we see people who are, who are speaking against and taking action against uh, the, the proclamation of the gospel and the, the, the living out of that gospel in the world, We ought to pray against those efforts. We ought to pray against those who oppose the kingdom of God, who oppose Jesus as the rightful Lord. Even as David does, we ought to pray against God's enemies. And notice the the second thing we see here. David isn't just praying against them. He isn't just praying for their defeat. He is praying for that. He he says, let them be put to shame and dishonor. Let them be turned back. Do not let them rejoice over me. But more than just praying for their defeat, he is praying for their utter destruction. He is praying that they would be entirely wiped out. And that, that again, makes us uncomfortable. (laughs) You know, we we want to live and let live. We we want to tolerate. We, We want to be nice. It's the ethic of our current age. And yet David prays not only that they would be defeated, not only that their plans would be foiled, but that they would be utterly destroyed. He says, let them be like chaff before the wind with the angel of the Lord driving them away. That is an image of of being wiped out entirely. He says, let their way be dark and slippery. Let destruction come upon them when they do not know it. Let them fall into their own net to their destruction. David is praying not only that they would be defeated, but that they would be destroyed. And again, I want to suggest to you this morning that this is exactly the way that we should pray against the enemies of God. We don't just pray that they might be contained. We we pray that they might be wiped out. That they might be no more. That is actually our hope. 
when we, again, when we are praying for the kingdom to come, we, we are praying for it to be the only kingdom. And that entails that all others, all enemies to the throne will be no more. That they will be wiped out. It's, it's, it's like we, don't want just, we just don't want the virus to be contained. We, we want it to be no more. And that is exactly what David is, is praying. He is praying for God's kingdom to be established on earth, which means that the enemies of that kingdom will be no more. That's what David is praying for. And that is what we must pray for. We, when we pray against the enemies of God, we must pray for their destruction. John actually tells us that this is exactly what Jesus came to do. He came to destroy the works of the devil. And so we are just simply praying that Jesus would be successful in his work when we pray for the enemies of God to be destroyed. But even as we pray this way, even as we, as we pray something like Psalm 35, we must cling to the hope of the gospel. And we must cling to the hope of the gospel for our enemies. See, this is how we begin to bring together the idea of praying against our enemies and praying for our enemies. And we actually see David doing this in, in verses 26 and 27. Look again there at the end of the psalm. Verses 26 and 27. In 26, we have just a sort of a continuation of the theme that we've heard up to this point. Let them be put to shame and disappointed altogether who rejoice at my calamity. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor who magnify themselves against me. Again, he's, he's praying against his enemies. But notice now what he says in verse 27. Let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad, and say evermore, great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servants. Now it's not immediately clear what is, what is going on here. We can, we can pass over this quickly as, if, as simply David is saying, be against them and be for these people over here. But we, we have to understand that when the scriptures set out a, a call for God to bless those who, who turn to him in faith, those who, who rejoice in his name, those who rejoice in his kingdom, those who rejoice in his king and in his righteousness, that entailed in that is a call to repentance for all who currently stand against them. Throughout the scriptures, when we hear a, a call for or even a, a threat of destruction against those who are, who are wicked, those who stand opposed to God, in that call for destruction is always an implied call for repentance, even when it is not stated explicitly. That's, that's simply a rule for you as, you as you read through the scriptures. Whenever there is a call for judgment against the wicked, it is always implied that alongside that call for judgment, there is a call to repentance. How do I know that? Because God himself says it. God himself says it in Jeremiah chapter 8. He says, listen, if I threaten disaster against a nation because of their wickedness and that nation repents, I will relent. Now we can get lost at this point and try to, well, what does it mean for God to relent? What does it mean for God to repent? What does it mean for God to change his mind? Don't go there. <laughs> Don't go there. Your brain's too small anyway. You know, we can't fully comprehend the, the, the full significance of how God's sovereignty relates to, to, to man's responsibility. But, but the scriptures teach clearly 
That when man repents from wickedness, God relents from disaster. Yes, he is sovereign over all of it. Yes, he foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. And yes, he responds to the repentance of sinners. When we repent, God relents of the disaster that he had threatened. We see this maybe most clearly in the story of Jonah. It's actually why Jonah didn't want to go. The message that Jonah was given to to preach to the Ninevites, you would have thought he was eager to preach to the Ninevites. Forty more days and this city is going to be destroyed. That's exactly what Jonah wanted to happen. But Jonah didn't want to go and preach that message. Why? Because he knew God. He knew God was a God slow to anger and abounding in steadfast mercy. He knew that God would grant to the Ninevites repentance and and then spare them. And that is what he could not tolerate. Jonah didn't want to go precisely because he knew the principle of Jeremiah 18. He knew that when God threatens disaster against a nation, if that nation repents, God will relent. And therefore, Jonah did not want to give the Ninevites the opportunity to repent. But that's exactly what David is doing in verse 27. Even as he calls out to, uh, before the enemies he've got, he says, Let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad and say evermore, Great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servants. As I said a few weeks ago, as we, as we keep encountering these, these portions, this is the first time we've encountered an entire psalm uh, that is imprecatory, an entire psalm that calls down curses on God's enemies. But we've, we've seen portions of psalms before that do this. And when we encounter these uh, portions of Scripture, when we encounter these prayers against the enemies of God, we need to remember, yes, it is right that we pray for the wicked to die. It is right that we pray not only for their plans to be forward, but for them to be wiped off the face of the earth. That is what we are praying for when we pray for God's kingdom to come and to be established on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we desire. The wicked must die. That is our hope of heaven. That is our hope of glory. We want to live in a world where the wicked are no more. And that includes the, the wickedness that is in us. That includes the old man that we want to be, see entirely put to death. We want to see the wicked die. And we should pray for their death. But it is far better that they die in Christ than die apart from Him. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And that brings us to our last point. Notice here how how David is is crying out to God, how long, God? How long is it going to be? He he is crying out because he hungers and he thirsts for righteousness. He, He wants to see righteousness established. And so far, he has not seen it. As the author of Hebrews says, we do not yet see all things in submission to our king. David doesn't see things as they ought to be, and he is groaning. And and you ought to take comfort in that. As as you experience evil, as you experience wickedness in this world, notice it is right to groan, it is right to cry out, it is right to say to God, things ought not to be this way. We are not Stoics. There There is a right and righteous discontent, a righteous dissatisfaction with the way things are in this present evil age. We have a right to cry out to God, how long? 
We have a a right to, to groan because things are not as they should be. But notice, God is not slow to keep his promises in the way that some people count slowness. But rather, God is patient. I'm sure you've heard the the scoffer at some point or or other say, well, if God's going to come and make all things new, why doesn't he just do it? If if he's going to come and put the world right, why doesn't he just do it? As if that would be good news for the scoffer. The scoffer just assumes, well, God's going to come and and make everything right. Well, Well, why doesn't he just do it right now? Well, because if he did, you'd be gone. It would be very bad news for you if God showed up right now to wipe away the wicked. Because that includes you. But the hope of the gospel is that when he comes, you don't have to be wiped away. When, when he comes, you do not have to receive the just due of your transgressions. When he comes, you can be counted among his righteous. You can be among his servants whom he delights to bless. You can be among those who say, great is the Lord. Because God is a God of patience. A God who does not delight in the destruction of the wicked. But a God who longs for people to be saved, to to receive and rest upon His Son, whom He has put forward as a propitiation, as a sacrifice for sins, as a sacrifice that turns away the wrath of God. God has has made salvation available. And he says, today is the day. Believe on him and you will be saved. None who call upon his name shall ever be put to shame. And so we see that yes, the wicked must die. But it ought to be our heart's desire, even as it is our heavenly Father's desire, that they die in Christ through faith, by repentance. And seeing this, seeing that, that it is God who, who calls the, the wicked to repentance, it helps us to see what we ought to be doing as we wait. Yes, we ought to be groaning. But more than that, we ought to be working. It is often said that when we pray for something, we ought to be ready to work for it at the same time. If you are a student and you're praying for God to help you on a test, you ought to study for that test. You don't just ask God to to magically spill the the, the answers into your uh, mind at the the moment of testing. If you're going to pray for God to help you, you you study for your test. If you're going to pray for God to heal you, you do everything that you can uh, to to pursue healing. You you eat right, you get enough sleep, you take the medicine that the, the doctors prescribe. If you are praying for something, you take steps in that direction, trusting that God will bless those efforts. So what is it we're supposed to do when we're praying for the destruction of our wicked? Well, it is not taking vengeance into our own hands. That's what we think. Well, if I'm supposed to work for what I'm praying for, you know, I I know how to give them what they deserve. But again, the scriptures say, no. Do not take vengeance into your own hands, but rather, but rather, give them a cup of cold water. Speak the, the words of life. To your enemies. Share with them the good news of the gospel because it is in this way that they will be ultimately subdued. It is the word of God that brings to nothing those who are opposed to him and it is the word of God who then raises them back up to new life. And so, what are we to be doing as we wait? 
What are we be doing even as we pray this psalm? We are to be declaring the good news to our enemies. That is our calling. That's what we are for. That's, we are to be declaring to them the hope of verse 27. Let those who delight in the king's righteousness, let them shout for joy and be glad and say evermore, great is the Lord, for he delights in the welfare of his servants. And because this hope belongs to us, and because we've been made ambassadors of this hope, even to our enemies, that is one reason we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let's believe it together. Father God, we do rejoice in your goodness. We thank you for your grace. And we pray now that as we come to your table, that you would remind us that this gospel is for us, that we who were your enemies are now seated at your table, and that you would remind us that we may invite any and all to come and join us at the feast. That those who have made themselves enemies, those who have, who have put their lives at risk by their transgressions and, and rebellion, that they too can be forgiven. And may we become bold ambassadors of this gospel, even to the ends of the earth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.